Welcome to another episode of Green Squad Chats. I'm James Lascara, and today we're going to be talking about seizing the opportunity. By the time you have all of the information you could possibly get, the opportunity will have passed you by. So who wants to kick this thing off? I mean, this is gold, James. You could give examples of this for days. I mean, I moved to San Diego in January 2005. What's that math uh, out to? 19 years ago? I think about 19 years ago, I moved to San Diego. And I gathered information for nine and a half years before I bought a house. I think that, does that qualify? Is that what you're talking about, James? I, I gathered too much. I gathered so much information. I probably left $2 million on the table in terms of you know wealth building potential because I gathered information and I always found reasons not to take action, not to buy, not to get started. And that's a painful lesson to learn by looking back. And while I don't have sleepless nights thinking about it, uh, it definitely colors my actions going forward. And it definitely impacts the way that I try to mentor and educate others. Uh, because uh, like I said, probably I can't do the math. I don't want to do the math to think about what the San Diego market did in nine and a half years. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing what we know now, it's so easy from us to approach this from the lens of, of hindsight and say we could have, should have, would have done all these things. But we've certainly talked quite a bit on this podcast about the power of taking action, seizing the initiative to, to get going. I think this episode is a little different because we can talk about the information criteria we do try to get in order to make those decisions because there's a, there's a balance here. If you're reckless, you're going to get 10% of the information and say, go anyway and you don't have enough information to properly mitigate risk. But if you try to go maybe above 80% of the information, if you're seizing, trying to attain that 100% information level, then you're gonna end up waiting for nine and a half years before you buy a house kind of thing. And so I think we could talk about each of us, what is that criteria for us? Anybody have any thoughts on that? And it's probably gonna be unique among each of us too. Right, that's the joy of the group, right? You got me, who's more of a risk taker, you got the Brandons and the Toms that want to take nine and a half years to uh, work through something and and make sure they have all their ducks in a row, right? And and for me, I probably jumped into some deals that I probably shouldn't have. And then for Tom and Brandon, you know, there's deals that they missed out on, right? So we're all just trying to figure out what that lane is and, and what that looks like in order for us to be com uh, comfortable with the decisions that we're making. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll throw some metrics out here for what I personally look for. I think 60 to 80% range is good enough for me. That's good enough for me. This also boils into to two other things I really believe in in investing. One is the principle of asymmetric bets, which is you need to have a disproportionate upside to your downside. If I'm entering into investment, for example, 50% chance of upside at 100 grand and 50% chance downside at 100 grand, that's not an asymmetric bet. They're exactly equal. But if I have a 70% chance at 300 grand upside versus a 30% chance at 100 grand downside, I'm taking that I'm taking that deal. What I just described is the exact house I'm about to buy in two weeks, by the way. 70% chance at 300 grand. So uh, that's one principle, asymmetric bets that I look for when I'm gathering information. How I look for asymmetric bets is what's happening in the area, infrastructure buildup for buying a real estate deal, and uh, what's happening in the market. Those are two things I really look for. Besides asymmetric bets, one of the things I mentioned, the other thing that I think really boils into this for me is my family situation. I would straight up not take the risk that I take if I had a wife and kids, because like if it all went to hell, I'd be able to pay all my investors back and their returns and live in a shack. 
And I'd be cool with that because that's my risk to take. I wouldn't do that to a family. So that's also why each of us has a unique perspective. I'm certain. Marty mentioned Tom and I in our, you know, nine and a half years of information gathering <laughs> before we pull the trigger. But I would say that, yes, I'm definitely more conservative than some of the folks in in the squad. But I do think it's important to go back to what is my what is my overall asset? So I call them asset tiers. And I like to have a really hefty amount of my equity in very safe and guaranteed tiers. Um, so the first tier is for me, the first tier is like, there's got to be guarantees. We're talking savings account. We're talking cash, cash equivalents and whole life insurance, cash values. Very guaranteed, not going to earn investment type rates of returns because those aren't investments, but they're places that I can store reserves. And I just look at that as a foundation and some people like more there and some people less. And so then from, as you go up the tiers, the risk of loss goes up, the guarantees go down. And so the rates of return should go up to compensate, but then I just have target percentage of equity. So equity, so whether it's cash or equity in my properties or, or equity in my cash value life insurance, percentage of equities among those tiers spread out from a risk, like a risk versus guarantees versus controls. And then you can adjust those. I adjust those for me to be very conservative. Like I like, you know, 40 to 50% in the lower tiers, very safe. I control it. I own it. There's some guarantees in tier one, tier two, less guarantees, but physical assets backing the investment. And so then I look at it like that. So that's where I start. And I'll pause there because from, from there, then it would be, all right, well, there's a gap in one of those tiers. Now I lo start looking for an investment that would fit the tier criteria and go from there. So I'll pause. I think James, I have some similar thoughts to what James just shared in that there are some market dynamics in play, some market metrics that matter in any deal, whether you're talking about a business acquisition or real estate. And, you know, right now, so we're, we're recording on December 16th, 2023. So right now, the Fed has uh, given some indications that we might see some lower interest rates next year. For many markets, the real estate transaction activity has dropped off pretty precipitously over the second half of 2023. And there's a lot of people that say now is not a good time to buy. And that is not true in every market, right? So to James's point, before you buy real estate, you need to understand what's going on in that market. Um, there are some places, uh, some zip codes that are a little more resistant to some of the macro things that are in play. And there are some that are super sensitive, right? And so understanding how the, the global, the macro situation is going to impact your specific zip code or deal is critical. Uh, and then I think, there's, I think there's also that element of personal risk that James talked about that matters to me. And my personal risk is different than all of yours, right? And, and different than everybody else's out there. So a mix of personal risk. And, you know, James talked about that asymmetric advantage. You know, that's leverage. A lot of people talk about having leverage. And so understanding what could go wrong uh, and how you're going to insulate yourself against that downside. For me, that's kind of the minimum amount of information that I need. We all got to be able to sleep at night, right? So whatever information we have, there comes a time when you either got to make it or not. And you got to be able to sleep at night. You got to be able to wake up the next day and do the same thing over and over again. So I think each of us has our own different quote unquote buy box, but we're also uh, 
each of us is an expert at what we are experts at. And so, and then if something slides into that, we're able to make a quick and informed decision and then we move on. And so being comfortable with it, I think is the biggest thing. It's all different for everybody. I'll talk about my eviction property because that's a good example of both risk mitigation on the acquisition when I bought it and also how things haven't gone as well as I wanted to with the eviction I have going on, but I've also been buffered because I had upside through value add. So let me talk about that for a second. I bought this property in 2021. And when I ran the numbers, the existing rents only gave me just barely positive cash on cash return, but it's in a great area. That's my buy box. I don't do low income housing anymore. I don't care about huge cash flow or huge cash on cash return because I buy for equity and not for cash flow. I don't get taxed on equity. I get taxed on cash. So uh, with that being said, I realized my value add play was minor renovations put on a new roof, which I did those within the first year. And I was able to raise rents because now I had a, a little bit nicer property. The property was rented for below market rents when I acquired it. And so had two pretty good years of cash flow. And uh, dealing with this eviction situation right now, I'll probably have three to four months of lost rent, maybe one to $5,000 of turnover cost in terms of the, the condition of the property. But the reason that the eviction doesn't totally jam me up, it totally doesn't, doesn't damage my investment health is because I had that upside of higher rents within those two years of acquiring it. And so, yeah, will I lose a little bit of money in the short term? Yeah, I'll have a quarter that's it's negative. Uh, you know, it's, I probably won't make a profit on that property, but it's buoyed up by all the profit I made in the first year and a half. So that's an example, I think, of, of how things won't always go your way. But if you risk mitigate, you can still equalize. For those people that are starting out on their investment journey, and they are a couple, it's really important that the team, whether it's spouses or business partners that they understand their risk mitigation criteria and they can talk through worst case scenarios and that way that's going to help shape their buy box it's going to help shape the type of properties they're going to go for and the areas they're going to go for like james just talked about but i think a lot of spouses especially don't know their own risk don't know and understand and how to apply that risk across investment strategies and, and then even going so far as trying to understand what type of investment they want to do to help make sure that risk is mitigated and they feel comfortable doing so. Whether it's private lending, multifamily syndications, short-term, long-term rental, like whatever that's going to be. Yeah. It takes, um, you got to put in some work up front to figure out what is important to you. What is your box? What is your risk tolerance level? And I think a lot of people don't take the time up front to do that. And if you get into a partnership and your teammates are on a different page, I think that you could run into trouble. Like, like uh, Travis was saying just now, you could run into some trouble and some disagreements and, and some, some road bumps, so to speak, if you don't take the time to do that up front. Travis brought something up that I was going to mention too, worst case scenario. Most of my worst case scenarios entail either doing a project for free, which means I, I work for free, hate that idea, or losing some money. I think it's important to characterize though, how bad could that be? Are we talking lost $5,000 or I lost $500,000 back to asymmetric bets. So try to understand, do your best to gather the information so you can characterize that level of risk for the downside and the severity. Kind of like ORM, operational risk management in the military. Kind of hate that term. It's, it's for most of us, it's kind of a paper drill. 
but it's also effective when you go back after there's some kind of accident in the military and you look at the ORM, it's like, oh, they, they were doing something on too little sleep. That's how cause an accident or they were flying helicopter at night and they were, hadn't done enough training to get to that level and they hit some power lines or something like that. So you can, you can go back and usually see where you went wrong because they failed to understand the likelihood and severity of the risk. And if you don't understand those things, you don't even recognize how you can mitigate it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to, to circle back on, on my comments at the beginning about nine and a half years, uh, Marty, knowing what I know today, what I want to tell myself from 19 years ago is fact, use some facts, have an idea of where you want to go, and then ask that hard question, what is the worst that can happen? And had I been able to have that conversation uh, or, or express those thoughts 19 years ago, uh, maybe I would have had enough info back then. You know, your, your comment made me think about when we had, when I was investing in Vegas pre-recession, right? This is pre-2008. And had I known what I know now, when we lost, when we finally short sold our last property in 2011, I would not have waited until 2018 to start buying property. Like that seven years, like you were saying, that nine years, so much capital, so much appreciation, so much, so so much was lost because of fear, anticipation, regret, you know, recovery after losing, having to get rid of those properties. James used the word asymmetric earlier, and, and I think there is an asymmetric fear when it comes to anything money, right? Most of the people we talk to, talk about, talk with, do hard things for a living. And they use, you know, whether you're talking about ORM or, you know, they're people making life and death decisions or people making, uh, solving real hard problems. I feel like they're working through similar mental processes to be effective in their their day-to-day job and their normal role. And they can use fact and logic and reason to come up with good outcomes. And then all of a sudden, when money enters the picture, it becomes very emotional. And it's, I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts as to why that is. And then all of a sudden, all the fact, logic, and reason goes out the window. And and it's tough, I think, for, for a lot of people. For me, it was to make informed decisions and to figure out that that uh, what information do I need and uh, how to move out. I try to have a healthy relationship with my needs versus my wants. So a lot of people think of their wants and they classify them as needs. And most of the time they're not. I, I need to drive a Lamborghini. That, by the way, you guys know I'm not flashy. There, there's a reason I don't. There's a reason I drive an F-150. Uh, but I, I need to feel included by driving Lamborghini and for people to see me. Not, I'm not knocking the people that are into that. If, if that's the freedom that you like, love that for you. That's not a need. You may need transportation to be able to have the life of freedom that you want and spend time with your family, taking them places and doing things around town. It doesn't have to be the nicest transportation. Uh, so I think the need versus the want, breaking that down helps me realize that at the end of the day, most of these are to expand my wants in life. My needs are met. All my needs, as long as I don't make any crazy, wild, uncalculated decisions, all my needs are met. And so everything I'm doing to grow is based on a want. When I realize that, it just becomes a really fun game. It's a puzzle. It's an adult puzzle that I'm trying to put the pieces together to accomplish my wants. Not sure if that resonates with any of y'all, but 
I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Yeah, the idea that you can hone that buy box and you're mitigating risk by the fact that, all right, I'm going to make sure that these needs are taken care of. And oh, by the way, I'm very clear on what our needs and what our wants. And once you're clear on that, then you can make sure you have enough set away so that worst case scenario, my needs are met. And then that frees you up. It's like a weight off your shoulder and it allows you to maybe make some moves and take some risks uh, with the want portion. So that really does resonate with me. And it's, and, and again, uh, I don't know who said it, but every one of us and every one of our listeners are different. They have a different idea of what that is. And some, the way they're categorizing needs versus wants is going to be different than the way I do. The comfort level is going to be different, right? Like we've talked about, I'm pretty conservative. I like 40% of my equity in very safe storage type reserves. Why? Because I know that then with the rest of it, if something goes wrong, I, I've got the needs covered because my reserves cover my needs and I know that I can bounce back. It's resilience. To me, it's resilience. So yeah, it resonates heavily with me, James. Brandon, you have, do you count retirement accounts in that 40%? I don't. So the wrapping, no, I don't. I don't count retirement accounts right, in the I'll, 40%. I'll share my number. I probably have about 3%. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. good comparison. Yeah. Um, actually, I put retirement accounts, depending on which one, right? It's it's very dependent on what the actual investments are. So the retirement account is the wrapping. Really, to me, the tiers that it, they go in for me are determined by what type of investment it is. What are my guarantees of the principal? Is there anything physical backing it up? Do I have any control over that? I'm thinking about that with the underlying investment. And before I put it in a tier, the wrapping, the IRA, the Roth IRA, the 401k, the TSP, that's just a wrapping. What is the underlying investment? And that's how I classify it into the tiers that I want. And so for a tier one asset, that is an asset with lots of guarantees, control, like savings account with federal deposit insurance, um, whole life insurance, cash values that are guaranteed to be there unless I do something uh, to screw it up. Like not great returns for uh, investment returns, right? But that's not the purpose. The purpose is the resilience, the reserves, covering my needs and giving me permission to then with the rest of my equity to go after something. That's good, Brandon. Someone should name an insurance company, tier one insurance. Tier one life insurance? Yeah. <laughs> um, they should and they have I think that's it James why don't you wrap us up alright so we'll conclude this thing here everybody has a different risk calculus for what's right for their life I think it's important to identify what your needs are versus what your wants are how you gather information before you make a substantial decision to proceed with a certain type of investment and how that investment with the risk calculus really blends into what you identify for the future life that you want to live. So I think that kind of rounds us out. Anybody got anything before we conclude? Well, with that being said, I appreciate everybody tuning in to another episode of Green Squad Chats. We try to keep these episodes pretty short for y'all. If you liked it, please go leave us a five-star review. If you don't, you can reach out to any of us. We'll see what we can do about making it better. We're always trying to deliver value out there and uh, have a quality experience for all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you guys later.